Revelation 3, starting at verse 1. Unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, The same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. One of the most difficult experiences in the ministry of any pastor comes at the time where you're called to the, by a, a family to the bedside of a, their loved one and asked for the advice regarding the hardest decision they'll ever make. You're expected to be able to explain the morality and practicality of removing a dying individual from life support. Now, I don't say that as a complaint because I will also say that oddly it's been a rewarding to be used of the Lord this way. There have been times where I, I have prayed with a, a mother as the family said goodbye to her daughter. I've wept with a, a wife of a husband as he drew his last breath. I've sat at the bedside of a precious saint from our church knowing that she was not going to live to the morning. And I've mourned with a father and mother even as they've waited for a their son's body to follow the non-responsive brain into death. Those are just a few examples of that moment to which we are all headed. But I can say this, while those decisions are difficult, there's generally a good deal of clarity before those decisions have to be made. What we find in our text this morning is that what is true about individuals is also true about churches. There is a time where an assembly that started healthy and even has a good reputation can be pronounced dead. Within the Southern Baptist Convention, there is a, a man named Tom Rayner who has become a bit some of, of an expert on helping dying churches find new life. He's their go-to consultant. He gets called to churches that are failing. And after many years of experience, in 2014, Rayner concluded there were some churches that have passed the point of no return. And if they can't be brought back to life, at the very least, let's analyze why it is that they've died. And so he wrote bluntly, in a little book called The Autopsy of a Deceased Church about the cause those churches 
faced the death that they experienced. Let me just say, if, if you're willing to read that book, I'm willing to get it for you. It's not a long read, but it's enlightening. He concluded that a, when a church starts glorifying the past as the good old days, when it refuses to adapt and change in ways that are helpful to the present, when it stops evangelizing so that the great commission becomes the great omission, when it neglects the opportunities for corporate prayer, and when it becomes focused on personal preferences and selfish agendas, when that happens, he's convinced a church is already dead, they just don't know it yet. And if that seems extreme, keep in mind that in our text this morning, the Lord Jesus, the head of the church, the, the great physician himself, sends this message to the church at Sardis and tells them bluntly, without any positive acclaim, that they are both dead and dying. A church can be so plagued with the cancer of spiritual apathy that the great physician says they're dead and just don't know it. As we've seen in these messages to the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, each comes with a description of the Lord Jesus first and then a diagnosis of the assembly. And each of those messages is a powerful reminder for the church and for the city that they represent. So a little background of the city of Sardis is likely going to help put this message into perspective because I'm thoroughly convinced Jesus is making a parallel between the, the history of the city of Sardis and the experience of the church at Sardis. Sardis was one of the most ancient cities in Asia Minor. It's already 1,300 years old by the time that Jesus sends this message to this church. And you might be surprised how you know this city, even if you don't know it by name. Aesop of Aesop's Fables was supposedly born in Sardis. To this day, you might occasionally hear the phrase that someone is as rich as Croesus. Well, Croesus was the king of the Lydian Empire, the capital of which was Sardis. In fact, the city of Sardis was so rich in its past that the most common archaeological finds in the region are sites that were dedicated to refining gold. So if you can picture the city, picture a, a, a river, it's called the Hermes River, and, and in this river valley there are hillsides surrounding the river, and the highest hillside, which reaches about 1,500 feet from the valley floor, that's where the city of Sardis sat on top of that little mountain, and built onto that little mountain, the entire city is made up and there were sheer rock walls on three of the sides of the city. So there was only one path up the mountain to get to the city of Sardis. It was safe because it was considered, well, it's impossible to assault. You can only get to it by a frontal assault because the, the sides are essentially sheer cliffs. However, Twice in the long history of Sardis, the city was conquered simply due to the overconfidence and ignorance of those who had been assigned to guard it. The first time was when the Persians overthrew the city in the days of that Croesus, the, the king of Sardis. 
And then 350 years after that, it was defeated the very same way by Alexander the Great. Both times, those who were guarding the city paid no attention to the rock walls as enemy soldiers slowly climbed up and crept into the city unnoticed. By the time of this letter, Sardis was no longer the thriving metropolis of its glory days. As a reminder of its ancient history, there was this massive cemetery. It was known as the Necropolis of Sardis, covering the surrounding hillsides with one ancient burial ground after another. It's actually been called by historians the Cemetery of a Thousand Hills. Sardis was a city whose past reputation was far greater than its present prosperity. Now with most of these cities, here's where I tell you that the city of Sardis is now known by another name, and this is what it is in the the region of Turkey, but perhaps unsurprisingly, that's not true about Sardis. Sardis is now as, as dead as the cemetery hills surrounding it. In fact, it would have passed from existence 80 years before this message because it was mostly destroyed by an earthquake, but the Roman emperor Tiberius sought to boost his reputation by rebuilding it. But today there's nothing left but the the mountain on which it was built and some ancient ruins that have those old burial grounds that surrounded the city. The city's dead. According to the message of Jesus, the church at Sardis seems to mirror the city of Sardis. Look at verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works, and that you have a name, that you live, and are dead. Now, this description of Jesus, we already saw that back in Revelation 1. In Revelation 1.4, John issues a greeting to the readers, um, commending them to the grace of him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Well, in Revelation 1.20, Jesus explains that he's got the seven stars in his right hand and they are the angels or the messengers to the seven churches. Now, to understand what this is talking about with the the seven spirits of God. These seven spirits are not like ghostly beings being controlled by Jesus. He says right in verse one, they're the seven spirits of God. This is a reference, I think, to Isaiah 11, verse two, which describes seven attributes of the Holy Spirit of God. It describes the Holy Spirit as the spirit of Yahweh, of wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear or respect. So Jesus, the Son of God, he says he has, he is at one with the Spirit of God. And he has these seven stars, these seven messengers who are delivering his word to his churches. But now listen as the message to the church at Sardis mirrors the history of the city of Sardis. He says, I know your works, that you have a name, that you live and are dead. When Jesus says you have a a name, 
He's not talking about a name that's out on their church sign. He's not talking about, you know, First Baptist Church of Sardis or, you know, Sardis Community Bible Church. That's not the kind of name that he's talking about. The word name here means reputation. I know your works. I know what you've done and I know what you're doing. I know you've got a reputation. You've got a history of being a a thriving, prospering community. But all you're doing is living on that reputation, and so you're not living at all. The reputation is alive and well, but the congregation itself is dead. If you've stayed tuned with these messages to the seven churches, usually when Jesus says, I know your works, we expect there's some at least one or two words of praise after that. But Sardis gets nothing except, I know your works, you've got a reputation that you're living, but you're not. Just like the city itself who'd thrived in their past history, but presently the most prominent feature was that cemetery of a thousand hills. There was this spiritual necrosis that had spread so wide that when the church at Sardis met, it was the equivalent of erecting a pulpit in a morgue and propping up corpses in the pews. Listen, we might live in remembrance of our past glory, but the Lord is not fooled by a church's love for the good old days. The great physician offers this perfect diagnosis and he says, You're dead. Now that's not the end of the parallel between the city of Sardis and the church at Sardis. Look at verse 2. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found your works perfect before God. Twice in its history, the city of Sardis was conquered because of the laziness and apathy of the guards on duty. The enemy could have been repelled, it could have been protected, but it's infiltrated into this city by slowly creeping in unnoticed. The church knew that history of its own city and now Jesus speaks to that church and says, you're in a similar situation. Be watchful. The Greek word there is alternatively translated as be watchful or be alert or be on guard or simply be awake, wake up. Can I just insert here that not much different from when Jesus was before the tomb of his friend Lazarus, Lazarus, only Jesus can legitimately wake up the dead. The good news, obviously, here is that there's a treatment plan for a dead church. But that plan requires that you will pay attention, that you'll wake up and follow it. And be, being watchful, being alert, being awake is the spiritual CPR meant to resuscitate a dead church. That watchfulness demands we pay attention to the danger of apathy that's surrounding us. Listen, I know that there is, there is plenty in, in both recent and, and distant history that our church has endured and we've addressed and we've faithfully overcome. But the message to Sardis should tell us clearly there is a danger in resting on our laurels. The glory of the past is not going to act as a defibrillator for a church that has no pulse. 
That church must be watchful. It must wake up. I want you to see how Jesus expands on this idea of being watchful by prescribing a a four-step treatment plan administered under the great physician's direction. Look at the the beginning of verse 2. At the beginning of verse 2, he says, be watchful. And then in the next verse, we'll see him say, if therefore you shall not watch. And so I think what this is describing is everything in verses 2 and 3 between those two statements, the command of you have to be watchful and then, well, and if you don't, everything in between is an explanation on how a church is to be watchful. And the first step in being watchful is commanded by Christ in verse 2 is strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. Now, in a strange way, this is really good news. In verse 1, they're dead. In verse 2, they're just dying. And that's an improvement. The idea of living on the past reputation of the church is now replaced by the assurance that there are some things. There are some things in the church at Sardis that are, in fact, alive. Not alive and well, alive and dying, but at least they are alive. If the church at Sardis exists as an example for us, instead of living on the reputation of all the good things we've done in the past, let's recognize that the very nature of history tells us that if our church survives another 60 years, today is going to be the good old days to another generation down the road. I promise, it's, it's really not my goal in Revelation 2 and 3 to like berate the assembly, but the messages of, to these churches are hard. And yet here's a promise from Jesus that, that even when we receive the darkest of diagnoses, all is not lost. He says, strengthen what remains. There are some things that are alive, and those things that are alive, even though there is the potential that they'll be lost. They need to be given attention to. And so let me just tell you briefly some of the things I see our church doing well. In the past few years, I've gotten very acquainted with that baptistry. The gospel is being proclaimed and the Lord has used that to add to his church. And that is good. The church endures difficult preaching. Look, y'all, I know that not every pastor can get up in front of their congregation and preach bluntly some of the things that I've said to you. But I know if I show you from Scripture, you'll take it. And that's good. In fact, I think you'll insist that I show you from Scripture. And that's great. In the past two years, we've endured one of the most challenging periods of time with COVID. It has tested our church, continues to test the church. Now, sadly, not everyone has passed that test, but overall, things have gone well. Not all of us have seen things the same way or would have made the same decisions, but we have endured it not with perfect contentment and perfect agreement, but with a display of Christian love. 
I get to see your willingness to display financial generosity whenever a need is presented. Almost without exception, the church is even more willing to do even more than I think that it will. We're, we're going to have an ordination service, Lord willing, in August because we have, we have experienced as a church seeing one man finish his calling well and another man accept the, the burden of picking up that calling and, and moving forward with it. Y'all, those are all good things. And the command to us here would be, Jesus says, strengthen what remains. But that command comes with a warning. Strengthen the things that remain that are ready to die. We ought to take those things, those good things of the assembly and commit to make them even stronger. Don't let the, the, the shiny glory of the good old days blind us to the present and what's good now. Because if we do that, what's going to happen is we will spend our time thinking about the good old days and, and mourning all that we had back then and then what we have right now is going to die silently and unnoticed. For any of us who think of the stories of Beverly Manor Baptist Church in the past and wonder why it's just not the same anymore, what we ought to do is ask ourselves if our commitment to the church is the same as it was back then. A church is not going to thrive beyond the commitment of its membership to serve. So we have to ask ourselves if serving the Lord and his church is really our passion or are we content doing less because Christianity is just a, a, an accessory that decorates our lives and we don't want it to get in the way of what it is that we really want to do. Listen, the church at Sardis, it is described by Jesus as dead and dying, but not done. I'm going to read something in verse 2 a little differently than what I've heard or read before, and I always think there's some danger in that. Like, if I'm the only guy who thinks, well, this is what it means, then what that means is I'm wrong. But I really think... This has been interpreted in, in, in a little bit of the wrong way at times. At the end of verse 2, Jesus says, For I have not found your works perfect before God. And most often that is explained as Jesus saying, well, I see a lot of sin. I see a lot of imperfection. And, and no doubt he does. So this reputation that the church had might make it wonderful in the eyes of of men or even of themselves, but not in the eyes of God. But let's remember that that word perfect in scripture means mature or complete. I think, I really think that what the Lord is saying to this church at Sardis is, I know your works. You have this reputation of all the good things in the past, but your works aren't done. They're not complete. They've not been perfected. There is more that God has planned for you. The first means of being watchful is to strengthen what remains. The second is found in verse three. Remember therefore how you have received and heard. What they received and heard 
is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation for, for lost and hopeless sinners found exclusively in the person and work of Jesus, God's son. He came to live perfectly, fulfilling our, our duty for righteousness. He took our sins and died in our place, fulfilling the price that was due for our disobedience. He rose victoriously to give us life, promising salvation to all who would repent and believe in him. But I want you to notice what Jesus says here. If you're reading a King James or New King James, you'll notice it's, it's translated correctly here. You'll see this doesn't say, remember what you received and heard. It says, remember how you received and heard. Look, I, I hope that, that all of us could describe the gospel explaining what it is. That's remembering what the gospel is. But do you remember how you received and heard it? That God completely by grace reached down and saved you? Instead of allowing that inexpressible gratefulness to God to be forgotten, you can remember the gospel every moment of your life, how that God's grace reached down and saved you. You can, you can fan the ember of that dying flame, confessing Christ, living for him, knowing that you personally were dead and brought back to life. Remembering that individually is the way that our church will survive collectively. Third, the third course of treatment in verse three is hold fast. Initially, this seems repetitive because the, the message to the church at Thyatira last week, you can see it in chapter 2, verse 25. Jesus told them to hold fast. But I want you to know that's a, a different word. Hold fast there to the church at Thyatira meant to, to grip tightly. But here to the church at Sardis, Jesus uses a word that means to obey or to keep. So he's reminding them at the beginning of verse three, he's encouraging them to remember how we receive the gospel. And now he's telling us to actually live out, keep, obey the gospel message in our life. Jesus demands obedient living. And the lack of obedient living is part of what caused the church at Sardis to be dead and dying. We're gonna see down in verse four that the Lord says there are a few in Sardis that had not defiled their garments. That's an Old Testament description of living sinfully. There's a few that are living obediently, Jesus says, but the majority are not. And the danger they're facing for disobedient lives is real. And so Jesus says the cure is more than just remembering the facts of the gospel. It's putting those facts to, to practice in our life. Doctrinal accuracy is important but it is never alone. A church that gets all its doctrinal facts straight can still die slowly from the disease of disobedience. The four courses of, of treatment that Jesus assigns in, in order are be watch to, in order to be watchful. Number one are 
Strengthen what remains. Second, remember how you received and heard the gospel. Third, hold fast. And the fourth, he says, is repent. There's a disappointing reality among churches today. The vast majority of folks think that repenting either means saying you're sorry or groups like the apostolic Christians say, well, it means making amends. We too often think of repentance as this one-time thing that we can do, that that this one-time thing that happens when we trust Jesus. Y'all, we need to repent daily. The word repent means to have a a change of mind, a change of mind that's going to result in a change of behavior. No matter how long you've been saved, you still have that old sinful nature within you that desires to walk away from obedience to Jesus and you're never going to outgrow the need for repentance, to have a changed mind about those sins that that draw you in. We always have to be looking to his word and have his word change our minds so it'll change our behavior. This four course treatment plan is how a church can be watchful and thus essentially receive the spiritual CPR needed to to bring them back to life. We have to strengthen what was good, remember how we believed, remember what, right? Obey what we believed, and repent. Have Have a changed mind about sin as we encounter it in our lives. And to refuse that prescription, if we won't do that, Jesus says that's failing to be watchful. And the next thing the Lord does is, tells us what to expect if we refuse treatment. The end of verse three, if therefore you shall not watch, I will come on you as a thief and you shall not know what hour I will come upon you. Every time scripture uses that idea of Christ coming like a thief or like a thief in the night, it is a a warning of impending judgment. Again, I think a parallel to the history of the city of Sardis is in view here and what the Lord is saying as he warns the church, right? Twice that city had been conquered because of the overconfidence and ignorance of the people who had been assigned to watch it. And the church faces the same potential, a dead and dying church which refuses to be watchful can expect itself to be overtaken with judgment that they were confident would never find them. Do you you think that the Lord would judge Beverly Manor Baptist Church in ways that we never saw coming? I assure you he would. Ultimately, Jesus distinguishes between the dead and dying church as a whole and the obedient minority that are are living to please him in all things. Look at verses four and five. You have a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments and they shall walk with me in white for they are worthy. He that overcomes the same shall be clothed in white raiment and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. 
Well, we don't have a ton of time left, but I think we have to deal with this apparent warning of, of I will not blot his name out of the book of life. It is often explained that this, this will tell us that Jesus might blot someone's name out of the book of life. Can a person be removed from the book of life and then, then therefore no longer be saved, right? Can a person be saved and then lose that salvation? Certainly that is not what Jesus is saying here. And we'll know that if we look at his description of the people that he's talking about in verses four and five. So just follow his description of these people. In verse four, he's talking about people who have not defiled their garments. That doesn't mean that they're perfect, but the idea is there is they have not soiled their clothes. That's an Old Testament picture of, of unrepentant sin. They had not rebelliously persisted in sin. He also says that they'll walk with him in white because they're worthy. That's actually an extension of that soiled garment imagery. Isaiah 1, 18, God promises his people that even though their sins are like scarlet, they will be washed as white as snow. Revelation 7, 14, we'll, we'll see that the, the, these white clothes again as being on the saints who have, quote, washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Another characteristic of these people in verse 5 is Jesus says that it is he that overcomes that will be clothed in white. Literally, he that has the, the victory. We know from 1 John 5, 4 that the victory that overcomes the world is even our faith. The victory is faith in Jesus. He also says at the end of verse 5 that he'll not blot their name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. This echoes what Jesus said in Matthew 10.32, whoever will confess me before men, I will confess him also before my Father which is in heaven. So when you look at who Jesus is describing in verses four and five, just to recap, it, it is ones who refuse to live in unrepentant sin, who are in clothes washed white in the blood of Christ, who have overcome, they have victory through faith in Jesus, and they confess him and therefore are confessed before the Father by him. Jesus says of those people, none of those will be blotted out of the book of life. That doesn't sound like a threat that anyone can lose their salvation. It's assurance of eternal security for all who believe, all whose righteousness is found in Jesus. Nobody written in the book of life is going to be removed from it. However, for what Jesus is saying, for, for what Jesus is saying here to make sense in the context of this message to the church at Sardis means, I think, that not everyone who was associated with the church at Sardis was written in the book of life. I think we have to conclude the church membership in Sardis included a great number of unrepentant sinners in defiled clothes, not washed in Christ's blood, not written in the book of life, not confessing him, not possessing victory through faith in his work. 
Should it be a surprise to us that one of the characteristics of a dead and dying church would be that it has within the congregation spiritually dead sinners who have never been brought to life? Never born again through faith in Jesus whose lives that they're living bear that out in the way that they're living them? A church of the Lord Jesus for it to be a healthy church must be made up of repentance redeemed saints who are living out their calling faithfully. Y'all, I don't want there to be an autopsy of Beverly Manor Baptist Church anytime soon. But again, the Lord Jesus makes it clear in verse six, this, this message to Sardis is his message to his churches. And the essence of this message is to be watchful, literally wake up, strengthen what's good, remember how you believed, hold fast, obey the Lord's commandments, repent, have a, a changed mind when repentance is needed. And don't be so confident in the reputation that we've built up in the good old days to miss what's in front of us right now because the health of a church It is not difficult to diagnose. You simply have to look for the vital signs of life within an assembly. Does the membership attend consistently? Do they declare the the gospel continually? Do they live faithfully? Do they serve willingly? When those vital signs are absent, the message of the church at Sardis teaches us that a church can be dead and just not know it yet. All right, let's dismiss to Sunday school classes in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this day. We're thankful for your word and the way that it confronts us and challenges us and and conforms us. And we ask, Lord, that you would use your Holy Spirit to give us an understanding of the message and a desire to follow it, that we would seek to be a, uh, a living example of the eternally living Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. Please forgive us when we fail you. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.